are continuing in week two of our new series on the book of Colossians. So last week, we looked at Colossians chapter one, verses one through 14. We got started with that. And just to give a quick review about what was happening there, Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote this letter to the church at Colossae, a church that he has never actually visited before, but was started by a man named Epaphras, who was somebody who probably came to know the Lord through Paul's ministry, uh, possibly during Paul's time in Ephesus, as uh, Ephesus and Colossae were only about 100 miles apart. Now, what we saw in those first 14 verses was Paul talking about what he does when he prays for the Colossians. And it says that when he prays for the Colossians, he does two things every single time he prays for them. If you remember this, I talked about how he gives thanks to God for their love. Now, this love sprung out of their hope that was laid up in heaven. So the Colossians, because the hope of heaven was so real to them, it gave them a freedom to be able to live a life of love here on earth. Because heaven was so real to them, they weren't stuck in the rat race and, and in the competitiveness and in the jealousy and the envy that is so consuming in this world, but they were free to be able to love other people, especially the family of God. And Paul thanked God every time he prayed for them because of this love that sprung out of hope. The second thing that he also prayed was that they would know God's will because that is the only way that you can live a life and you can live a life that is fully pleasing to God. He says that's why we need to pray to know God's will so that we can live a life that is fully pleasing to God, abounding in fruit and in good works. So he says this is what he does. Every time he gets on his knees and he prays for them, he gives thanks because of their love and he prays that they will know the will of God. Now today, as we continue, we're going to be moving into verses 15 to 23, the next segment here as we, as we go through the entire book of Colossians. And this passage here that we're going to look at is considered by some, by many actually, to be one of the most, if not the most, majestic passages on the person of Jesus in the entire Bible. It is so lofty in its grandeur. Um, it, is, it, it just exalts the person of God. It is truly magisterial in how it describes who our God is. And it's so important that as we look at this passage and we come to understand more about who Jesus is, because that's what Paul's going to get into, who Jesus is. This is so important because it has been said that every major heresy or deviation from the Bible, from the gospel, every major one messes in some way with the person of God, who he is, with Jesus, with uh, either his divinity or his, his full personhood or the Trinity. It always messes with the person of God. So it is so important to know who God is. And this passage today gives us such a grand exalted view and understanding of who God is. And it's broken down in, the, in, in a couple of ways. First, it's going to talk about Jesus' role in creation. And then, secondly, it's going to move into Jesus' role in the new creation. First, his role in creation. 
And then secondly, his role in the new creation. And then lastly, how that applies to us, what that has to do with us. So let's look here. We're going we're gonna to go slowly through this. He starts off verse 15 by saying about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. What he's saying here is that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is God incarnate. Um, He is the God of the universe who was born of the Virgin Mary, took on human flesh. He is God in human form. Now, we need to understand that Jesus in human form does not make him any less than God. He is completely God. We call this the dual nature of Christ, how he is fully God and fully man. Super important for us to understand. How does that work? We don't know. It's a mystery. But Jesus was the omnipotent, omniscient, eternal God But he also took on human flesh, and and he hungered, and he thirsted, and he grew tired. He was fully God and fully man. Um, You know, later on, in verse 19, Paul continues. He makes this point. He says, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Not a part of God, but the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 9, he makes this a little bit more clear even. He says, for in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of deity, of the divine nature, is within the bodily form of Jesus Christ. Jesus is fully God in human flesh. Uh, In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, The author says, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. You cannot have the exact imprint of God, a divine nature, and not be God. He has an imprint of divinity, eternity, omniscience, omnipotence. In other words, he is fully God. This is why in John 14, when Philip asked Jesus, he said, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? What Jesus was saying is, when you look at me, when you see me, I am God. I am God. Some people say, oh, you know, the God of the Old Testament, he seems like a really angry dude. I like the Jesus of the New Testament, but I don't like the God of the Old Testament. I like the Jesus of the New Testament because every time I see a a picture of him, he's holding sheep, right? He's stroking a, a cuddly little lamb. He's such a gentle guy, but that's completely wrong theologically because Jesus of the New Testament has the same nature, is God, is the very God of the Old Testament. They are three persons in one God. We call that the mystery of the Trinity. So Jesus is God in human flesh. Now, Paul goes on and he says that Jesus 
is the firstborn of all creation. Now, we need to understand that firstborn does not mean that Jesus at one point did not exist. Like, my kids did not exist until they were conceived, and then they were born. It does not mean that at one point there was only the Father and the Holy Spirit, but no Jesus. And then Jesus was born, they created him, and he was the first one, the first one born out of all creation. That's, that's actually what Jehovah's Witnesses say. They say that Jesus is a really, really powerful angel. He is the first created being of God, but he's still a created being. He did not exist for all eternity. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses say. But is that what Paul is saying here? No, when he says that he is the firstborn of creation, it means that he is the greatest. He is supreme over all of creation. Now, we know this because right before, we already established that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, right? He is God. But there are other things as well. When we look here, in verse 16, Paul says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now, it wouldn't make sense to say that Jesus created all things if he was one of those things. For somebody to create all all things, it means that he is the ultimate creator and has always been. Jesus is the one that created everything, not that he himself is a created being. Now, firstborn, um, in, in that ancient society, yes, firstborn means at one point that you were non-existent and then that you were born. But that's not the only meaning that it took on in biblical times. Firstborn, the firstborn son was also somebody who received in that society what's called the double portion. You got twice as large of an inheritance as your next oldest brother, as, the, as your other siblings. You had a certain prestige, a certain preeminence, if you will, in the family. Um, so firstborn came to mean the, the best, the most important. Look here in Psalm 89 here, um, in the psalmist, when he wrote this, this is about David, God speaking, saying, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. It's not, God's not saying, I'm going to make him the first king to ever come about. There have been many kings before David. In fact, Saul was right before David. There have been kings for thousands of years. But what he means is, I'm going to make him the greatest, the best, the highest of all the kings of the earth, the firstborn. And certainly, that's who Jesus is. He is preeminently the one that is Lord over all of creation. He made the universe, everything that we can see, everything that we can't see, he created it all. And Paul wants us especially to know that includes every other competing authority. All thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Jesus is greater than all of them. 
He is greater than the government of the United States of America. He is greater than the United Nations. He is greater than Satan in his kingdom of darkness. Jesus is greater than all of these things. He is preeminent, the highest Lord and creator of all things. There is no one greater than him. Paul wants us to understand uh, the preeminence of who he is, the Lord God who made everything. Not only that, it says here at the, um, at the end of verse 16 here, this not only were all things created through him, but they were also created for him. Friends, every single one of us, we were created for God. That's what we were made for. That is the purpose of our lives. You were made to worship God, to serve God, and for his glory. Your life, my life, is not your own, and it's not my own. We were made for Jesus. This is not a God of determinism. Determinism, which says, well, God made the universe and the world. He wound it all up and he threw it out there. And then he said, latest, <laughs> and he's gone. He's an absentee God. And now you guys just kind of run things on your own, which is unfortunately how we view our lives sometimes, how we're tempted to think that I'm out there to live my life for me. But the Bible says, no, Jesus not only created everything and created you and me, but he created us for him, to glorify God, to worship him, to serve him and obey him. Now, this is, this is so important because if you don't know what you were made for, or in this case, who you were made for, you will be searching for that your entire life and never satisfied. You will. The other day in my house, I found this black wheel, I have no idea what it's for. It was lying on the floor. It looked like a macaron, a black macaron. It was this kind of chubby, chubby wheel. I was like, what is this? It's a wheel. It's lying on the ground. I can't throw this away. Obviously, this is for something. And I started looking around, looking at all my chairs, wheels, looking at the dishwasher. We have a rolling dishwasher. It has wheels. No, all the wheels are there. What in the world is this wheel for? I don't know, but it's not doing any good sitting there on the floor. So what do I do? Like many of you, I take this thing and I throw it in the spare parts drawer. I can't throw it away. It's probably meant for something, but it's going to sit in that drawer until I figure it out, or it's going to sit on my shelf collecting dust until I figure out what it's for. You know what I'm talking about? We all have those things in our house. Until you can find out what it's for, it's useless. It takes up space. It sits there on the shelf collecting dust. Brothers and sisters, friends, we were made for God. And until our lives are lived in the pursuit of worshiping God and living for his will, making his will our will, you will not understand what you were made for. You will be living out of alignment with what you were made for. Perhaps that's why you go from job to job to job because you think 
that you were made for a certain career. And if I could just find that thing that matches with my gifts and my interests and everything, I'm going to experience so much meaning in life. What you're going to do is go from job to job to job and, and feel like it disappoints or it never really lives up to that. If you think that you were made for a relationship with another person and then that's going to solve all your problems, if you could find that special somebody, you're going to go from relationship to relationship to relationship. And then when you find somebody that you think is that special somebody, you're going to get married. They're going to realize marriage ain't all it's cracked up to be. I thought this was... This, I watched K-dramas. This doesn't seem like the same thing. I don't feel that. You're going to feel like it's not living up to what you're looking for. Maybe if you think that kids are what you were made for, to have children and to raise them up, one day when you're an empty nester, you're going to be sitting at home wondering, why don't they call? You know why they don't call? The same reason you don't call your parents, right? We're doing our own thing. <laughs> the same reason. Friends, we were made for Jesus. And if we don't understand that, we will constantly be looking and never feeling like we understood or understand what we are made for. Not only that, Paul says here in verse 17, and he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Friends, again, this is a, another strike against determinism. God not only wants us to be living for him, he not only made the universe and did not walk away, but in fact, he is actually holding the entire universe together at this very moment. At this very moment. Hebrews again, the second part of that verse, it says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Friends, the, the only reason that the, the universe doesn't fly apart, that each of us does not disintegrate and fly apart into billions of particles is because God is holding, Jesus is holding us all together. Right now, right now, without him, poof, we would fly apart. I was, I was reading about physics and um, the quantum realm. And I know a lot about this because I watched Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania. So I'm an expert on this. But if you go back to physics class, there are, you know, four fundamental forces in this world. And you find out that we are made of the, the smallest thing possible. It's called a quark. That's what we're made of, not quirks. No, that's not why you're quirky. Quarks. We're made up of quarks. And these quarks don't like each other, and they should fly apart. But they don't for some reason, because of something that physicists call the strong force. Not Star Wars, but the strong force. That's what keeps us all together. Now, if you look into this and you ask them, what is the strong force? What is it that keeps these quarks together and keeps them from flying apart? The answer at the end of the day is, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. We don't know what that strong force is. I'll tell you what it is. It's Jesus. <laughs> it's Jesus. <laughs> That's why we don't fly apart. 
You see, science, science, physics, chemistry can observe the, the created order and tell us this does that, this reacts in this way. It, it observes patterns, which now, then we call laws of, of the universe, but it can never answer the why questions, what philosophers call the first order questions. There is a force holding everything together, but why? They don't know. There is matter, but where did matter come from? We don't know. Well, well you know, it came from the, the Big Bang and there was a ball of energy. Where did that come from? We don't know. Well, maybe it was always there. Well, then you're giving it divine attributes. That's called eternity. You're moving into God land there. But science cannot answer the first order questions. But the Bible says that the God of the universe is holding everything together by the word of his power. Right now, if you close your eyes for a moment and you observe your breath, every breath that you're able to take is because Jesus is holding all the particles in your body together. And the moment he lets go, everything flies apart. He made everything and is holding everything together. He is the Lord over all of creation. Now, Paul, he shifts now in verse 18, and he begins to talk about our Lord Jesus and his role in the new creation. The original creation was marred by sin, was filled with brokenness and disease and pain and death. But the new creation is something that Jesus is Lord over as well. It says here in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, the new people of God here. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He was raised from the dead. And because he was raised from the dead, Anybody who puts their faith in Jesus will also be raised from the dead at that last day when we see God to live in resurrection life. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul now talks about what this Jesus does in creation that has been broken, he comes to make a new creation through the sacrifice of his own body for sin, dying upon the cross for our sins to create a new people of God, those who have faith in him that he calls the church. He has come to do something new in creation. Now, there's a, a question that can come up here when it says in verse 20, when Paul says, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, to reconcile to himself all things. Now, the question can be, now, does that mean then that everybody is saved? If Jesus reconciled to himself all things, does that mean then every single person in this world is saved? Because it's, it's all people, right? It's, is the Bible teaching universalism here? 
that it doesn't matter if you make Jesus your Lord and Savior. It doesn't matter if you pray and ask for forgiveness and ask for Jesus to forgive you of your sins. It doesn't matter what religion you believe in. It doesn't matter if you're an atheist. Everybody at the end will be reconciled to him. Is that what Paul is teaching here? No, it's not. Because if it were, that would contradict countless passages in the Bible that talk about a real judgment to come. That those who have not received this forgiveness that comes to us through the cross will experience the judgment of God. As Jesus said, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. That would make Jesus' words here, it would make a mockery of his words here and countless other passages like this. What is Paul talking about then when he says Jesus reconciles to himself all things? What he's saying is that Jesus is the way to salvation to be reconciled with God for everybody. He is the only way. As Peter said in Acts 4, and there is salvation in no one else. No one else. Not any other religion, not any other philosophy, not by being a really good person and, and helping grannies across the street. In no one else, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What Paul means is that Jesus is the source of reconciliation for everybody who would come to him, who would say, I am a sinner. I need to be forgiven Jesus, would you forgive me of my sins? I believe that what you did on the cross is for me. And that is the way for everybody, whether here in America or on the other side of the world or in the most remote island in, in, in the Pacific, it doesn't matter where you are. Jesus is the way that you can be reconciled to him. He is the Lord over the new creation. He is preeminent in new creation. There is no way to become a part of the new creation except through Jesus. And lastly here, Paul now turns to us. He says, and you. So he, he lays out this God who is preeminent over all the created universe. And then he talks about his preeminence in the new creation and salvation. And then he says, and you. Now for us and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul says that if you put your faith in Jesus, there is an incredible incredible blessing that comes upon those who trust in Jesus. It says that you will be presented before God when you die. And then in that final day, when Jesus returns and you stand before God, you will be presented to God as holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. God will not see any of your sin because the blood of Jesus has washed it away. Um, allow me to illustrate this. Uh, a wealthy European bought a Rolls Royce. One day he hit a deep pothole in the vehicle 
and the rear axle broke. He shipped the rolls back to the plant in England. He was surprised by how quickly the car was repaired, but was happy to have his rolls back. He waited for months, but no bill for the repair came, though his warranty had expired. Finally, he wrote and asked the company about it. Their reply, we have thoroughly searched our files and find no record of a Rolls-Royce axle ever breaking. You see, for Rolls-Royce, their reputation was too important. Their reputation covered over any flaws in their workmanship. Friends, we indeed have sinned. We indeed have many flaws. We indeed are a broken people. But the reputation of Jesus, Jesus, the God of the universe, who was without sin, covered our flaws in our sins and our mistakes so that when we are presented to God, he does not see our flaws and sins and mistakes, but he sees the blood of Jesus. Through faith in Christ, we can be presented holy, regardless of our sins of the past, of the present, or of the future. We are presented before God as a holy people. Now, I was talking to somebody once about this, and this person was, was not a Christian, and he said to me, he said, you know what? That's just the stupidest thing. I said, okay, <laughs> you got my attention. He said, that, that's just so dumb. I mean, God forgives all your sins, all your sins, and he's also going to forgive all your sins like in the future as well? That's so dumb because that just means you just do whatever you want. I mean, you could just go out and just like kill and murder and destroy and steal and do all that kind of stuff. That's so stupid. It's like a, you know, I, I grew up in the, in, the, in the 80s and 90s, and it's like that, you know, you're, if, you, if you remember these shows, they're so corny, they don't do this anymore, but there used to be these shows where like a detective is trying to solve like a crime or a murder or something, and then, you know, he, he finds out, you know, this person who did it, right? Ah, I figured it out. And then he goes to arrest the person. He says, you were under arrest for the murder of so-and-so. And then the person says, oh, I am actually the ambassador of XYZ country. And he pulls out his credentials and he goes, diplomatic immunity. <laughs> and the detective goes, oh, drat, drat. You remember these shows? They don't do them anymore. They're so corny. I grew up in the 80s and 90s. It was like, I know what they're going to say. Diplomatic immunity. Right? It's, it's that, you know, it, that's what it seems like, right? Oh, well, I could just say diplomatic immunity. Kingdom of heaven, ambassador of the kingdom of heaven. Diplomatic immunity. I could do whatever I want. But, but that's not true because Paul here, this is why in verse 23, there's a big if here. He says, you, you are presented holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, if, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable, and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul says, 
if you will experience this holiness and blamelessness and being above approach, if you hold, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, and you don't shift from the hope of the gospel. Claiming diplomatic immunity and saying, I could do whatever I want, is certainly shifting from the hope of the gospel. Because the gospel says, not only are we forgiven, but if you are forgiven, it means the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in your heart and you begin to change. You begin to become like Jesus because somebody who has the Holy Spirit within him or her cannot help but become more and more like Jesus. And if you go on in your life saying, I'm going to shift from the hope of the gospel, I'm going to go out and do whatever I want, and then one day when I stand before God, I'm going to pull my get-out-of-jail-free card, and I'm going to say, ah, I believe in Jesus. I'm going into heaven. You're sorely mistaken. F.F. Bruce, the theologian, he put it this way. He said, if the gospel teaches the final perseverance of the saints, final perseverance meaning if you are a Christian, you will persevere. You're going to make it to the end. You're going to get into heaven. If the gospel teaches that, and it does teach that, it teaches at the same time that the saints are those who finally persevere. That, that how, do you, how do you know who a saint is? How do you know if somebody is truly a believer in Jesus Christ? They are going to run the race and make it to the end. They're not going to shift from the hope of the gospel. They're not going to go out and say, this means I could do whatever I want, regardless of God. That's not going to happen. Continuance is the test of reality. Whether or not you continue on in the faith, stable and steadfast, without shifting from the hope of the gospel, that is the test of whether or not the truly the Holy Spirit is within you. Because if the Spirit is within you, you will finish this race. This is not works righteousness, friends. This is not earning our way into heaven. It's, it's the reality. It's the proof that we actually are Christians because the Holy Spirit cannot be contained. And he will bring about change in the life of the believer. So friends, don't shift from the hope of the gospel. During COVID, many Christians or, or many people in the church are shifting from the hope of the gospel. They're walking away from the church and many will not return. And they're shifting from the hope of the gospel. Friends, don't shift from the hope of the gospel because, because you're disappointed by news of celebrity pastors and ministers falling in the moral failure and it discourages you. It discourages me too. But Jesus said that he is the head of the body, the church. And when we walk away from the church, we walk away from Jesus in, in many, many ways. Don't walk away from the hope of the gospel because you're disappointed by what you see on the news. Don't walk away from the hope of the gospel because of the brokenness of this world, because of war because of disease, because of pain. Brothers and sisters, friends, don't shift from the hope of the gospel. I conclude with this, as the author of Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It is a, a word of exhortation. It's a word of warning. It's a loving rebuke. It's a loving reminder all wrapped up in one. There's no other way. There's no other name under heaven by which we shall be saved. And it is such a great salvation, friends.
the preeminent creator of all the universe, is also preeminent over death and the firstborn amongst the dead so that we can also experience holiness and righteousness in God. May we never shift from the hope of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, may we fix our eyes upon the grandeur and the majesty of this God so that we continue to pursue him, stable and steadfast, never shifting from the hope of the gospel. Let's pray together. Invite the worship team up. God, we exalt the name of Jesus this morning. Lord, you are the creator of all things. You are worthy, worthy, worthy. You are holy, holy, holy. You are almighty God. And we worship you. And God, we thank you that the God of the universe has condescended to take on human form and to die the death of a criminal, though you were without sin, upon a cross so that we could become holy and blameless before God. Our sins washed away because of the incredible sacrifice of the God of the universe. Lord, what a great salvation. What a great salvation. Has anything like this ever taken place in the universe? Surely not. Our great God has wrought a great salvation for us. May we not neglect it. May we not stray from it because there is no other name under heaven by which we shall be saved. Oh God, and may we not stray from it in our daily lives, but may we continue on stable and steadfast, saying that though the world may fall away, I will follow Jesus. As the disciples said, Lord, where else shall we go? You have the words of life. May that be true of us and of your people. Hallelujah, Lord. Build up a people who see the beauty of Christ and are committed to running after your glory and your splendor. Let's stand together, brothers and sisters, and let's worship God. Isn't he worthy of all of our heartfelt worship this morning? He is the awesome God of the universe, and there is none like him. Let's worship him like he deserves.